Dr. Sherry All, founder of the Chicago Center for Cognitive Wellness and author of The Neuroscience of Memory, Seven Skills to Optimize Your Brain Power, Improve Memory, and Stay Sharp at Any Age. And you're listening to the Neuro Noodle Network Podcast. Welcome to Neuro Noodles, Neurofeedback, and Neuropsychology Podcast, featuring our neuropsychologist, Dr. Laura Jansen, Dr. Skip Wren, and neurofeedback legend, Jay Gunkelman. Our goal is to provide information and promote options for better mental health. This is an all-star cast that are more than happy to share their knowledge with you. My name is Pete. Uh, today on the show, we have Dr. All. She's the owner and the director of the Chicago Center for Cognitive Wellness. She's got a book out, The Neuroscience of Memory, Seven Skills to Optimize Your Brain Power, Improve Memory, and Stay Sharp at Any Age. Available now. It's the first in a series of neuroscience books that inspire purpose, leadership, and spectacular living. But before we get to Dr. All, we'd like to thank our Patreon supporter, R.S. Coso. They haven't told me yet if it's R.S. Coso or R.S. Coso, but I, I'm sure they'll reach out. It's the only 100%. It's ours? Okay. Can be found in Costco. Isn't that right, Dr. Laura? That's what I saw when I Googled it. So, yeah. It's the only 100% natural supplement on the market that provides balanced nutrition, combining pro, pre, and postbiotics, an enzyme which has pro proven to improve gut health. We love gut health, don't we, Dr. Skip? We do, Pete. Easy for you to say, pre, post, post, uh, that, right? Fermentation. That's why Fermentation. You're the host. Yeah. yeah, that's why I'm the host. If it's a great show, it's your credit. If it's crap, it's my fault. Hey, check this out. They gave us a coupon code, NeuroNoodle10. What's the 10 for? 10% off. Click the link. It'll be in the podcast notes below. All right. We have Dr. All. Dr. All, thanks for coming on the show today. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited to be here. Now, you're in Chicago. Please tell us about your clinic first and then your book second. We're all ears. All right. Well, uh, I started the Chicago Center for Cognitive Wellness in 2012. My background is in clinical neuropsychology. I, I came through the neuropsych training ranks with my PhD at Rosalind Franklin University and did um, training with Dr. Neil Pliskin at, at UIC. About halfway through my graduate training, I, I kind of looked around and I'm like, hey, we're really great at kind of telling people what's wrong with their brains. Um, like, when do I get the training and like the what's next? And they're kind of like, oh, yeah, we don't know a ton about what to do about this. This is about 20 years ago. And so I was able to carve out a training route for myself to develop a skill set in cognitive rehabilitation interventions. And so I started the Chicago Center for Cognitive Wellness really with that mission in mind to provide sort of a what's next for people who have been diagnosed with a cognitive decline. Mainly older adolescents and adults are who we treat. There are lots of existing services like tutoring and executive function coaching for kids, but not a lot for adults. And so we're a little different than, than what you all do. We, we don't actually use neurofeedback. Um, we do a lot of what's really kind of evolved into what I like to call uh, like neurologically informed psychotherapy. So we're really kind of at our core. We're a therapy practice. 
I have a team of psychotherapists at every level of the mental health pipeline from counseling students, counselors, social workers, and some psychologists. We have a neuropsychologist on staff. We do assessments for people 16 and older, um, but our real, our bread and butter is really all these treatment services. And so we're a referral destination for other neuropsychologists in the area. We're a preferred provider for the Mesulum Cognitive Neurology and Alzheimer's Disease Center at Northwestern and and a lot of other clinics like that. So people get a diagnosis, they want to know, you know, what do I do about this? And and, and mainly what we're doing is, is sort of supplementing psychotherapy interventions with mainly compensatory cognitive rehabilitation strategies. So, so how do we kind of work around what's happening? But, but we do work in some restorative strategies here and there, kind of when, it, when it's appropriate and when patients are motivated to kind of take that on and, and those sorts of things. So that's CCCW. Then you want me to talk about the book? Yes, um, please. Uh, wow. Like I got to fulfill a lifelong dream this summer by uh, getting this puppy in my hands. And um, so it's called the, the Neuroscience of Memory, Seven Skills to Optimize Your Brain Power, Improve Memory, and Stay Sharp at Any Age. It is a self-help workbook, kind of co-developed with New Harbinger Publishing. They're a publishing house that specializes in the self-help space. So direct to, you know, anybody with a brain is kind of the primary audience. But part of their mission is to also have a secondary audience of professionals. And so they want all of their products to be evidence-based so that it's also a tool that any clinician should be able to pick up and kind of work through with their patients. And so it's kind of chocked full of lots of worksheets, self-assessments, exercises, a lot of, and, and then there's a whole catalog of downloadable worksheets. So, so you can kind of do them again and again. It's just been a beautiful opportunity for me to kind of like digest and, and sort of package my methodology for kind of what we've been trying to do at CCCW for almost um, a decade now. So it teaches you about your brain because we know that when people know how their brains work, that they're better at operating it. So there's a kind of healthy dose of metacognition. It teaches you memorization strategies. So sort of the standard uh, memory enhancement strategies of like visualization and chunking and writing things down. I was able to get permission from the Western Psychological Services who publishes a product that we use clinically. Tony Stringer, who's a neuropsychologist at Emory, put out this ecologically oriented neuro rehabilitation of memory. That's a mouthful. Um, So he calls it the Eon memory program. It's a 22 session cognitive rehabilitation program, but it's all kind of built around this uh, acronym of WAPR, which is write, organize, picture, rehearse. And so that's kind of integrated into the book. You kind of practice these memorization skills as you learn about neuroscience, learn about how your memory works. I teach about cognitive reserve and brain plasticity. and, And those are kind of the foundational chapters 
And then the seven skills are kind of the final seven chapters that go into seven areas of lifestyle that we know are um, linked to better brain performance now and better brain health as you age. Of the seven skills, uh, do you want to pick one that's most important or are you going to be a psychologist and tell me they're all important? <laughs> so um, I'll pick one. Um, like as of right now, based on the state of the evidence, it really seems like physical activity is the a number one best thing you can do for your brain. We have good experimental evidence that shows that when you're physically active, that you're doing a lot of amazing things for your brain. You're growing new brain cells, uh, more of them. We all grow new brain cells, but physical activity helps you grow new brain cells. And um, I don't know if you guys talk about this much, but adults grow new brain cells. <laughs> um, we don't grow a lot of them. So you got to keep the ones you have. And they and they really, you know, grow only in and around the memory centers in your brain. So, so you grow new brain cells. It helps you produce these nerve growth factors that are like miracle grow for your brain cell. They play a big role in helping those baby brain cells grow up to be new neurons because they don't actually start off as new neurons. They start off as stem cells and then help all the existing brain cells that you've had your whole life rewire, which is you know a lot of what you're doing with, with neurofeedback. And brains are getting bigger from physical activity, significantly reduce your risk for Alzheimer's disease. And also there's some pretty cool experiments where people learn better that if you kind of study something and then, you know, go for a walk and then come back that you've kind of memorized it better. So, so I'll pick that one. It, it's not an easy one to, to kind of stick to. I mean, I'll, I'll admit to that personally. But, um, Which child do you like best? Right. <laughs> I like socializing best. That's probably my number one. <laughs> I just to jump in on that last. So we're talking about physical activity and that's a pretty broad term, right? You know, what, what are you referring to? If we're going to, you know, just throw out some things for our listeners. Are we talking 20 minutes motion a day, uh, you know, three, three trips to the gym a week, mm-hmm. um, just incorporating the idea of activity more where, where are you? Or is all of that acceptable? Uh, it seems that there's probably a couple of different benchmarks. Well, what, what we know so far is that the more, the better. There doesn't seem to be yet a point of maximal returns. So people who are doing kind of pretty intense physical training really seems to be, you know, have better brain health in the long run. And then I try to talk about a little bit of kind of what's the minimum. So studies have shown that probably six to, so there was a group of, there was a study of women in their seventies that they followed for seven years to see um, who developed Alzheimer's disease during that period of time. Uh, The women who walked six to nine miles a week, significantly fewer of them developed Alzheimer's disease within that seven year period compared to the women who walked less than that. So, and that's about a two mile walk three times a week. And so I would say that if you're not getting that, then your risk is pretty high, but we should think of that as sort of like the baseline. And if you can do more, then then it seems that seems better. Also, some newer studies are showing that uh, high intensity interval training it may have better impact on at least short term memory performance. There's still a lot to learn here. Science is still relatively new. My bottom line is usually, you know, the more you can do, the better, and every little bit counts. Our mentor, um, Laura's and, and mine, 
used to say without without movement there's no cognition right so the idea is you know babies explore their environment through that exploration the brain makes what's novel automated or familiar right so there's there's part of brain development right and it's easy at least in my mind to draw the line to hey if you're sitting on your couch all day then you're not really encountering new things and so your brain's on autopilot just doing what it does as opposed to you know as we're talking about just getting outside and walking around uh, as an example right that would force you to then encounter a novel situation that doesn't mean you don't know how to walk it means hey you're going around the corner you're not you know doing what you do when you sit on the couch which is usually not much right this idea of automation and novelty and movement laura what do you think as far as you know i'm gonna make a grand statement here but staving off things like degenerative disease right so the first thing actually that popped in my head was definitely Len, but like the default mode network, right? How many of these conditions, you know, anxiety, depression are looped into the default mode. So if you're on default mode all the time and there is no active anything, right? You think of even mindfulness as an activity, right? You're on purpose trying to, trying to notice something. I'm on purpose trying to listen to the fan go. I'm on purpose trying to touch my sticky bottle, whatever. Um, I'm on purpose doing things and that activity moves you out of the default mode. Now I'm in, I, I think that switching um, is kind of what you're talking about as far as uh, improving cognitive functioning and things like that. So I'm, I'm sure, you know, like you said, at the minimal level, you know, switching out of default mode, doing anything, rearranging your drawers, uh, cleaning your cabinets, throwing out your socks. What, I mean, whatever. I was just, I was just going to my sock drawer or whatever. So it was, finding all the, the things that didn't have matches. And I was finally throwing out those stupid non-match socks. But anyway, do, doing anything, you know, engages, you know, the activity goal direction uh, uh, activity system uh, network. And I, I can only imagine, you know, how um, productive that is for keeping your brain healthy. Let's, uh, let's look at a lower order animal, a sea squirt. They, they swim in their- Wait, wait, life. wait, wait. Hold on. I, I hate to break it. A what? A sea squirt. Yeah, a, a little tiny thing that swims around and it'll find a rock and it'll attach itself to a rock. Okay. As soon as it's as soon as it attaches to the rock, it eats its own brain. It no longer needs a brain to predict the future, what might be around a rock or where it's swimming to. You know, you <laughs> apparently the ability to move ends up requiring the ability to predict. And if you don't have this Bayesian brain, you apparently don't need one. So, and the other thing, activity, uh, you know, we're not sea squirts. Uh, so I, I found myself in a chair. I'm not going to eat my brain here. If I'm up and active, I sleep better at night. I get more slow wave sleep if I've been active during the day. Uh, the endorphins that are produced in exercise end up helping with sleep. If you don't sleep well, your beta amyloid plaques build up if you don't have slow wave sleep. You know, if you want to sleep better at night, make sure you have a reasonable level of activity during the day. It facilitates brain health at night. Brain health at night is really quite critical. They've just shown recently that if you have 10 nights of restricted sleep, less than six hours, you still feel kind of okay. I mean, you're a little you know, under uh, arrested, but you still feel pretty much okay. 
but it takes over a week for you to start to recover your cognitive function. Sleep loss or restricted sleep uh, ends up dumbing you down. If you've had two nights of no sleep, your performance is that of somebody who's under the legal, uh, just over the legal limit of alcohol. So, you know, it's, it's important uh, to uh, take care of your brain. It's the only one you'll ever get. Exercise is a major piece of that. Uh, obviously, uh, you, you've got six other things that you haven't even mentioned. Uh, you you want to feed the brain properly. Uh, there, there's, there's all sorts of things. But if you don't get good sleep, you're really ruining your ability to optimally function. I'm also thinking about uh, theta wave activity, just jump around here a little bit that, you know, get us into the discussion of uh, brain wave activity. And so there's really slow waves, your delta while you're sleeping and you need a lot lot of that while you're sleeping. Theta is is kind of that in between. I'm I'm alert. I'm asleep. I'm I'm in that kind of middle phase. And my understanding is that in in theta is when we do the best learning. I I love this story. I was telling, uh, talking about this kind of stuff with sleep and wakefulness and in brain health uh, with someone who was from India. And he told me about the punch the pillow uh, tradition that they have here. Have you guys heard of that? Punch the pillow. Okay. So if you want to remember something in the morning, and this is, you know, something in their culture tradition that they follow that uh, if you want to remember something in the morning, punch your pillow. Like I I need to wake up at six o'clock. I have that meeting. I have to go pick up the dry cleaning at seven. I have got to catch the plane. So whatever it is, it's punch the pillow. And the point being is that when we learn the best, when we're almost falling asleep and that theta kind of moment. So, you know, we talk about amyloid plaques, you know, there's a physiological aspect to memory, um, but there's also, you know, the proper um, brain rhythm or brain brainwave uh, place to, to be in order to, to learn well. So the, it's the unconscious learning, the, the implicit. I, I always hate alarm clocks, just talk personally, that um, I, I never said, I get up early anyway, just because that's who I am. But, um, and maybe, you know, I think um, J, uh, Jay's brought up, yeah, well, you're not supposed to get up early. There, there, you know, there's, there's probably stress underneath that getting up early. Uh, but I never set an alarm clock, even if I have a plane to catch. So there's something in that theta activity that, that helps people learn. Um, so yeah, we're talking about a, a variety of things here uh, in terms of neuroscience and sleep and health and cognitive performance. During sleep, you have two major pieces of sleep that help your memory. Um, uh, Obviously, the sleep onset theta-like state, hypnagogic or hypnopompic as you're waking up, uh, does have your your conscious guard down, so there can be things learned without your filter. However, during sleep, you have slow-wave sleep, where you actually grow new connections. Your brain hooks up neuron to neuron. These new connections then have to be fostered by function, which happens during REM. During REM, you actually play back experience through these new connections and long-term potentiate the information that you've learned in the short term during the day, which is one of the reasons that uh, sleep disorders end up being so problematic for therapists. You know, in, in your therapy, you're trying to teach somebody some coping skill or something. And if they're not sleeping well, whatever you've just taught them is maybe 30%, 40% less encoded because they're not sleeping well. And in neurofeedback, especially, it, it is a learning curve. So if you don't have good sleep, you end up messing it up. Now, TMS, you think uh, transcranial magnetic stimulation, 
you know, how could sleep mess up that treatment? They've actually uh, observed and published that if somebody has a sleep disorder and they have obsessive compulsive disorder, that the TMS treatment for OCD does not work until you've treated the sleep disorder. Uh, sleep is crucial for memory function. And uh, without it, uh, things degrade very, very quickly. Within a couple of nights of no sleep, you're just as good as a drunk. Uh, and with chronic sleep restriction, you get to the same place. And it takes a long time to recover. Uh, people think they're better, but it, you know, objectively, uh, it, it takes a long time to recover from sleep deprivation. I was seeing someone in psychotherapy for a long time, and I was having her do relaxation techniques and mindfulness, uh, mindfulness techniques, close your eyes, take a deep breath, you know, relaxation types of things. And um, she, she never did her homework, you know, um, and I didn't jump on her too bad, but yeah, hey, you're you, you not doing your homework. Um, never did that. And then I got my neurofeedback equipment and I wired her up, so to speak, I put the sensors on. And I had her do the mindfulness and the relaxation techniques. And guess what? She was falling asleep. I mean, so to the point of Jay is I didn't have that physiological information to clue me in. Like, that's why she's not doing her homework. She's sleeping. You know, yeah. so every time anyone tells her to close her eyes, she's out, out like a light and not, you know, yeah, not learning, not getting anything done, not being able to relax because she's either up in high beta and, and trying to keep herself awake. And then otherwise she's sleeping. So, yeah, interesting. Yeah information you can get from the technology. Yeah, I want to jump in on this just a little bit too, to kind of close out the loop because the role of stress hormones like cortisol, um, it's all kind of this crazy cycle, right? Like if you don't sleep enough, then your amygdala is overactivated and you, which activates your fight or flight response and you produce more cortisol. Cortisol keeps you from growing new brain cells. It kills off the ones you have. Um, and, 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 and so being physically active when you're in, when you're moving your body, you're in that fight or flight mode, but then there's an automatic rebound into that rest and digest. So it's like kind of one way to sort of put ourselves, put our bodies into that state, having more opportunities of being in kind of that parasympathetic nervous system state is good for your brain. It helps you sleep better, right? It helps with concentration. And then even in addition to all of that, like if you have a sleep disorder, like maybe obstructive sleep apnea, you know, that, that there's a burst of cortisol when you, when you have those moments of waking up. So, so many of these different areas are kind of intertwined and it's, you know, really all kind of boils down to holistic brain health. But, but if there's kind of one area where maybe you can jump in, maybe it's harder to treat a sleep disorder, but you know, if we can just kind of get the heart rate up for a little bit, um, that that could then start some of that cascade. So it's all cool, kind of how it all runs together. Sleep lab in Los Angeles for three years. And it's astounding what you end up running into uh, when you actually start to look at sleep professionally. You know, apneas are a major piece of what's wrong with uh, some people's sleep. But restless leg syndrome, uh, which is actually dopamine-related deficiency, is, is also seen in kids that have ADD that mm-hmm. end up responding positively to Ritalin, which is a dopamine reuptake inhibitor. So there are sleep-related disorders that end up loading into the ADD population as well. And mm-hmm. obviously, if you're not sleeping well, your attentional uh, skills are going to be uh, somewhat compromised. There's lots of kids now that actually look like they're in stage one sleep when they're looking you straight in the eye saying, I'm awake. 
but their brain is not fully awake and alert and vigilant. Those kids are going to look like ADD kids, but quite commonly what they have is, is disturbed sleep. If you have a primary disorder of vigilance, which is like narcolepsy without cataplexy, uh, you, you just can't stay awake, literally. Uh, those people don't really respond as well to stimulants as they do to modafinil, which is the drug that they give for narcolepsy. Uh, and it's starting to be given uh, for primary disorder of vigilance in adolescence. Now, there's obviously some warnings about it. Um, uh, the, uh, you, know, you don't want to end up uh, uh, prescribing medication without looking at all the various factors, but uh, there, there are uh, a lot of kids that end up responding positively to modafinil, uh, preferentially over amphetamines or uh, uh, methylphenidate, Ritalin, because their problem isn't uh, activation level once they're awake. They just can't maintain the awake state. Modafinil doesn't work on uh, norepinephrine or dopamine, the, the uh, stimulating uh, neurotransmitters. It, it works on orexin, which is a sleep regulator in the brainstem hypothalamus level. So it just flips you to the awake state. And during the day, being awake, you sleep better at night as well. I think we're nibbling around the edges, at least on our end. Could you tell us more about what neurologically informed therapy is and, and what it looks like? I'm always curious when people come on with what they do, like, what's it look like? You know, how, how does a session go and that kind of, I mean, I, I don't think it's anything too terribly unique or, or rocket science. I, I kind of borrowed the term from some of the trauma informed uh, interventions like trauma informed yoga. I mean, what, what it really means to me is that I have an expectation that the mental health providers who work for me come internally within the clinic to learn about neurological conditions. When I talk to people about who's a good patient for our practice, you know, we're, we're going to treat anybody who comes to us for depression and anxiety. We're not going to turn that away because, you know, at, at our core, we're a therapy practice, but we're really like to try to specialize and, and provide a home for people who are affected by some sort of neurological condition. And so we see people who are in the early stages of Alzheimer's disease, other dementias. We work with a lot of family care partners. We treat a lot of people who have experienced a traumatic brain injury, concussion, post-concussion syndrome, some functional cognitive disorders, and then really any other condition that you might be seeing a neurologist for. So MS, we've treated several people with um, some autoimmune encephalopathies, brain tumor resections, epilepsy. And so um, I don't want my, I don't want the patients to be having to educate the therapist on the condition. Of course, they're going to educate them on what it's like for them to have that condition. The therapists um, have sort of a basic understanding of sort of what's happening medically in, in these different types of conditions. It sounds like maybe, and I certainly can't speak for your, your clinic, but it sounds like maybe more than just a little awareness of medical conditions. And if we're talking particular organs, the brain, right? Private practice for therapy. I remember when, you know, grad school in the mid nineties and all that good stuff with person centered and even narrative therapies, you're, you're situating folks as the expert in their own experience, which of course they are. But I think at least in my training, there was this underlying belief that, you know, potential is limitless and 
everybody can, you know, grow up and be president or whatever, you know, the, the, the job title might be right. Uh, and you get into neuropsych and you start looking at brain injury in particular, and not everybody can. Right. And, and I don't mean to be, you know, deficit model focused on what people can't do. I'm just saying, having an understanding of the impact and effect of the brain on doing anything, which involves participating in therapy has to be understood. And when I say has to, I mean, just for effectiveness, right? It doesn't have to be because it's not part of the licensing for becoming a psychologist. You know what I mean? You don't have to understand it. Practices or clinics like yours uh, sure are encouraging. And, and I know we've been in the decade of the brain since the nineties, you know, according to time magazine, right. But with the innovations that are out there with imaging, et cetera, neuroscience is just churning out so much that's informing us how the brain's working so that we can be with folks and work with them where they are, which is the true goal of therapy, right? Meet the client where they are. But if you're meeting them where you think they are, because here's how you dialogue and I'm going to tell you some stuff to understand and incorporate, and then you're going to apply it to your life and you're going to be better. That's Pete, that's grad school in like six, six words. Okay. But that's, <laughs> you're, we're, Thank we're you. missing, yeah. Okay. We're, we're missing giant pieces, right? of of how folks disseminate information like that's that's i don't want to say it's everything but damn it's a hell of a lot of it the book neuroscience of memory when i hear memory i you know the layman of the group the moms and dads out there think of dementia and we had dr sanderson on from california a while back she has a if you have memory problems you have it's not really assisted living it's not really a nursing home it's a dementia in-house clinic where you go into and you address the issues, do you think that will catch on if somebody is labeled uh, with that to get proper treatment? I mean, I think that's really what, I mean, partly what I'm trying to innovate is uh, the we need early detection for memory declines. I don't know if you guys have talked about this that much, but we're really facing an epidemic of dementia in the next 30 years as boomers age into that category. It's really unprecedented. And I'm not sure that our, our society fully appreciates kind of what we're in for. I mean, the cost of it is astounding. The, you know, the best impact that we can have, at least at this point, without an affordable disease modifying medication for something like Alzheimer's is, is to try to find people who are starting to show some changes, um, either in that mild cognitive impairment range or in the early stages of Alzheimer's or, or early stages of, of major neurocognitive disorder and, and intervene. Uh, we have have treatment recommendations for that population. And, and so if we can find them and then kind of work with them holistically, because those are the treatment recommendations is that we take a multimodal approach from every angle, medically, lifestyle, psychologically, really with the goal of kind of protecting as many neurons as we can uh, to decrease neuropathological damage. So through a combination of just kind of making sure that, you know, your blood pressure is where it needs to be and your A1C and you're sleeping and you're moving and you're eating well, and we're treating depression and anxiety. And we're talking about like functional changes. And, and so a lot of what we do is really work behaviorally with um, people and, and family members to really try to like plan out and optimize whatever activities of daily living that people can kind of hold on to for as long as possible. And it's sort of in that early stage is a really 
cool time to kind of do an inventory of like, what are some ADLs that I might be able to take over from my care partner so that, you know, they're not doing everything, right? Because that's when you get put in the nursing home. And that's when things get really expensive is when you burn out your caregiver. And, and so, you know, if you can become the laundry folder or the dishwasher unloader or the coffee maker, you know, in your family, then, then there's a lot of potential to try to maintain as much independence as possible for as long as possible. I've got some very good friends in Korea that have a helmet that measures EEG. It, it expands, it sits on the head, and it compresses down. All the electrodes are in the standard 1020 system, and it goes through your smartphone to a cloud. And w- within a couple minutes of uh, the test, which is only about a 10-minute exam, uh, you end up with a, a, an artificial intelligence scrubbing of the data that identifies whether you're normal for your age, whether you're likely to have mild cognitive impairment, or whether you are, in fact, on a decline of dementia. Mm-hmm. And as a, as a planning tool, it, it differentiates the normal person who's got severe depression, which is a very difficult dif- differential diagnosis, severe depression versus dementia. And uh, it, it's really quite as a screening tool. Uh, they've gone through the Korean FDA. They're in process here in the U.S. They have better than 80% accuracy on identifying uh, dementia versus mild cognitive impairment. I think because of the boomer generation uh, hit, hitting the streets at this point as a clinical group, this kind of identification of are, are you depressed? Do you have cognitive impairment? Or are you, in fact, on a dementia decline? The ability to predict a couple of years before it becomes purely obvious what the outcome's likely to be is a huge benefit for planning. I mean, if you know that two years from now, you'll probably be in full care versus at home with some assistance, you've got a brief period of time to get your affairs in order or somebody else will. Not everybody wants somebody else to figure out what they want to do with their affairs. So and these objective uh, EG-based uh, differential diagnostic tools end up being a, a huge benefit. The clinician doesn't have to know anything about an EEG. This is a dry sensor helmet. You put it on, squeeze it down, wait 10 minutes, uh, wait a couple more minutes so you get your, your answer back on the computer or on your phone. You don't have to have a fancy amplifier. It's, it's basically all in the helmet and the software on the phone. That's so, so cool. I love seeing these advances. My my first job uh, out, like before graduate school as a research assistant, you know, was doing auditory evoked potentials, you know, just kind of scrubbing and putting it into the old school amplifier on like a DOS-based uh, computer program. And it's, it's always fun to watch the, the new cool stuff come out. Oh, how much are those caps, do you think? Tw- 25 uh, grand. Yeah, um, they're about $25,000. But as a medical device, that's not that expensive. You know, it sounds out of pocket, like quite a chunk, but a medical lease on $25,000 is a few hundred bucks a month. It's not, uh, um, it's not really prohibitive. That's about Um, four months of memory care uh, tuition. So, you know, (laughs) and, and for a clinician who's doing screenings on an, on a, an active basis, it pays for itself almost instantly. So um, and they're right now they're uh, they're reaching out to people who want to apply it in a specific memory uh, unit or a, a hospital or you know people that are working with dementia uh, they're looking for people to actually do uh, research in the U.S. 
Um, the, the Korean research is apparently not as acceptable, although they're major institutions. Is, this isn't like they're faking data or anything, but the, the US FDA wants uh, studies here. So uh, they're, they're reaching out looking for uh, facilities that are uh, interested in uh, using the device in uh, organized studies. Dr. All, with your, I'm just going to call interventions, and I don't mean to you know, trivialize anything you guys are doing, but you know, we, we do all this assessment, and even what Jay's referring to is an assessment, right? We're trying to figure out where folks are uh, to be able to treat appropriately. So with something like memory, and I think everybody might you know, have their own conceptions of what it is, but it's memory. It's like, hey, you're so-and-so, and we did this when we were six, or you're my kids, or George Washington, first president, all that stuff, memory. But there's there's other kinds of memories, right? We just, you know, use different terms maybe. But again, back to our, our mentor, Len Koziel, we, we looked at procedural learning and the ability to be able to maintain connection to procedural learning can be an early sign of, of cognitive decline if that, if that starts going away. And, and I heard you on the tail end talking about folks, you know, being the, the dishwasher loader in the family. It, again, if, if memory is the, 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 the red flag, like, oh my gosh, like I, I, who are you? You know, that kind of thing. Like it's you're probably down the road a little bit of ways, but what other kinds of things are you guys targeting? When I say target, just trying to be aware of to intervene. Do you guys follow procedural learning or, or even working memory capacity in the progression towards memory loss, right? If memory loss is the, the bad door that we don't want to go through, or are you able to intervene and follow along the way towards there. And I'm sure you are. So, <laughs> so, I mean, I, I think, you know, trained as a neuropsychologist, the, you know, there's lots of different memory systems, right. That you know, three main memory systems in the brain. So, um, so procedural episodic and then emotional memory. And, and so I, I think with different conditions, we, we know that those affect different parts of the brain and therefore different parts of that memory system. And so somebody with maybe like a traditionally subcortical type of dementia profile is going to struggle a little bit more with like attention, executive function, and, and probably some more of that procedural memory, um, particularly the basal ganglia involvement, right. With like Parkinson's disease, Alzheimer's disease, it doesn't tend to really start in that part of the brain. It's more kind of down and around the hippocampus where you're kind of learning semantic declarative and episodic information. And so early on people with Alzheimer's, the, the basal ganglia, it tends to be relatively spared. And, and so that's why I'll kind of advocate for uh, procedurally based types of interventions, because people with Alzheimer's disease are really going to kind of thrive on habit and routine sort of early on in, in the disease. So, so we always start from the neuropsych report. We want to know what domain is affected. We want to know what the pathology is behind that, because that's going to affect how we approach it. And so, so we have some people with ADHD who will come in and we'll work with them from a lifestyle perspective. We'll do some executive function coaching. We may also put them on a CogMed working memory training that's really designed to try to, it's a restorative type of uh, intervention that's designed to really expand working memory capacity. That's a totally different treatment plan than for somebody with early Alzheimer's, for a lot of our people with other types of conditions like MS, you know, maybe it's, it's more related to, you know, like adherence to their medical protocols. Um, so I, I think kind of a lot of what we do maybe falls in the bucket of, of what a lot of, what a health psychologist might do of, you know, really trying to help people kind of live 
their live their best life in order to kind of uh, promote their their cognitive health. Depression and anxiety piece really kind of can't be understated, and that really underlines a, a lot of what we do is kind of help people avoid avoidance, <laughs> um, learn about their stress response, um, learn about the impact of limbic hijack on cognition. You know, and kind of helping themselves. You know, like when you have a period of you know intense anxiety, like you know that keeps you from being able to pay attention and kind of zaps your executive functions and sort of how do you get that back? So those are kind of a handful of a, a lot of the, you know, like the toolbox that, that we use, but we really try to meet people where they're at and to really try to understand the neuropathology um, before we kind of pick one of those different types of interventions. Hey, Doc's got a question for all of you. You know, when you go in, you do a, an intake and they give you the clipboard and you're filling out the paperwork and the year 2021. When do you think we'll get to the point where we're submitting our saliva or whatever it is on a DNA and you can see what you're susceptible to? Do you think we'll ever get to that? Because like 23andMe, even the old, you know, one from 10 years ago, do you really want to know if you want to, if you're going to get Alzheimer's and Parkinson's, you got to check, you know, check that box. I checked it. But what, when do you think we'll get to that point? Because we're talking about a holistic approach, right? So isn't that the best history to get, see what the percentages are on the DNA? I'll hang up. I don't know. I always say DNA is so 90s. I, <laughs> with epigenetics, like there's, you know, like there's only so much. I mean, certainly there are conditions, right, that are like autosomal dominant. And, and maybe you're going to know that like Huntington's disease and some, so a real small portion of Alzheimer's disease. But, you know, for, for a lot of people, you know, it's really a lot of how we, what we do with our lives, right. That, that plays a big role in uh, gene expression. So I don't know. I, mean, I personally don't, I'm not going to check that box. Cause I don't know if I can be trusted with my APOE type. Like it might be cigarettes and Chardonnay from here on out. <laughs> if I'm like a APOE 4-4 kind of high risk, I don't know. <laughs> I have a great story for you guys real quick. I think uh, Skip and Pete may already know this story, but uh, I have a new puppy. I talk about my puppy on here uh, every now and then, but um, I gave him a DNA test and he came back. He's a, a lab. He's a black lab. Like any, any picture that pops in your mind, black lab, he's black lab. The DNA re results came back uh, black lab and little boxer and whatever else. And it also came back 30% Chihuahua. Chihuahua, what? He's a lab. He's a, there's, you know, I'm looking, what, what do you mean black lab, uh, Chihuahua? Uh, guess what my other dog is? Chihuahua. Chihuahua. <laughs> so meaning how clean were those reasons? He's a puppy, right? So he's, he's, he's got his mouth all over the other dog, all over the other dog's stuff, all over the water bowls. He's eaten in every dish, including mine. So uh, in terms of DNA results, um, that, that kind of threw everything uh, upside down for me. You can have the genetic marker for things and those genes may not ever express and right. breast cancer genes, Alzheimer's uh, genetics, they're a, a propensity, but it doesn't, it's, it's not a, an immediate definite. It's, it's a, it's a possible future, but it's not, uh, it's not a guarantee. The, the nuns who were in, in their eighties that had all the biomarkers for Alzheimer's, but they were not demented. Um, you know, the, uh, at autopsy, they find all the tangles and plaque of somebody who has Alzheimer's, but they don't have the uh, presentation at all. They, they appear to be very sharp seniors still. So uh, all the biological markers in the world don't necessarily 
uh, guarantees something is going to end up being the case. Uh, you can overcome uh, your genetics. I, I, I do agree. It, it is so 90s. The genetic testing for medication prediction primarily identifies liver uh, pa metabolic pathways. Very little bit of actual brain uh, neurotransmitters is predicted by it. I'm not going to totally give up on biological testing, the ability to transcend what you've actually got. There's a way to play every hand in poker, even a pair of twos. So uh, you might have to be really good at bluffing, uh, but there's a way to play that hand. I like that you said that, and it, like bringing in the the breast cancer, you know that we, you know, now we test for the BRCA gene because we have a, a, a intervention that's been shown through clinical trials to be effective. We don't have that for Alzheimer's yet. You know, there's there's the idea that potentially we could, you know, find out people's risk factor and then put them on a program that helps them modify their lifestyle to lower their risk. But that study hasn't been done successfully or published yet. And so uh, until, until there's an evidence-based intervention that's um, kind of shown that, that, that it's helpful to know what your genotype is, I, I'm going to hold back my DNA for now. And, and referencing David Perlmutter's podcast, which is pretty interesting for folks out there. They're, he's a neurologist. It's been around grain brain and all kinds of other good books. His latest podcast was on the prevalence of this Alzheimer's gene. And, the, you know, the question he didn't, this isn't exactly how I said, but why the hell do we all have this, right? And the idea, I think, is around what we're talking about and that the potential could be there genetically. It's, it's whether those genes get activated or woken up, right, or, or not, or put back to sleep. And so that's, that comes into the lifestyle issues, which is not nothing, you know, like we're talking about, we've been talking about sleep for half an hour and, and the complex physiological processes that happen just by getting a good night's sleep can stave off all kinds of crappy genes. Right. And I think everybody's aware of this too, but you know, the question, at least in my practice, when parents are coming in and they don't put it this way, but it's like, Hey, nature nurture, you know, did my uh, spouse screw up my kid or was it like that to start, you know, kind of thing. And nature nurture, the answer is yes. It, it probably works in different proportions, right? Maybe early on it's, a little more about your your nature and then it you know progresses anyway the point being is that these epigenetics slash dna that's that's available or or their force has a blueprint is is kind of just that right it, it can be activated or or maybe not um and it's only a suggestion dr all but cigarettes and chardonnay like is that the title for your next book or what that's that's fantastic i'm buying it pre-order right now <laughs> i love that yeah yeah <laughs> I, I'm glad you kind of brought that up because it relates it to, you know, back to this idea of cognitive reserve that, you know, this is a bona fide scientific theory that that's actually the better predictor of when you're going to show cognitive skill loss, like, like quantifiable memory changes that are, you know, worse than normal aging and get in your way. And that's how we diagnose dementia. I mean, that's, that's the, that's the diagnostic, um, criteria. And so you can, you can get a PET scan right now that shows how much beta amyloid is in your brain and you can have a gob of beta amyloid. And, and like what we learned from the nun studies is that that does not predict your cognitive function. What really 
predicts it more is how much brain you have left over. And so I'm not saying, you know, like, don't try to prevent beta amyloid from getting in your brain. Like that's important. And we can actively invest in our cognitive reserve kind of throughout our entire lives, physical activity, sleep, like all the different seven strategies. And so uh, chapter four of my book goes into a lot of detail about cognitive reserve. I really want it to be a household name that people think about, um, you know, kind of every time we make a choice about whether we're going to go for a walk or we're going to eat that cupcake or versus, you know, some spinach, because basically every choice you make every day, you're either actively investing in or deducting from potentially your, your cognitive reserve. And, and so it's something I think we should all be thinking about. Wow. Three letters. It's either DSM or DNA. Don't bring it up with you guys. Oh, man. <laughs> That rhymes with cigarettes and Chardonnay. <laughs> DNA and Chardonnay. <laughs> and Chihuahua. And Chihuahua. Yeah, I was going to say, Dr. Laura, I try to keep my snout out of your dog's bowl when I get my 23andMe. How do people get a hold of your clinic and is your book easily available? Yep. So my book is everywhere. Amazon, Audible, uh, it's at sherryall.com. You can buy an autographed copy from me if you'd like. And also at local bookstores. And it's been picked up by a lot of libraries that it's, um, even though it's a workbook, uh, the the availability of the downloadable worksheets makes it uh, kind of library friendly. So, so you can find it there. You can find us clinically at cogwellness.com. So cog is in cognition and wellness.com. We'll have all the links in the podcast note. Dr. All, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Yeah, it was such a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. It was great to meet all of you and spend some time goofing around and, and talking science. We thank you all for listening to NeuroNoodles Neurofeedback and Neuropsychology Podcast. Again, we'd like to thank our Patreon supporter, Ars Coso. It's the only 100% natural supplement on the market that provides balanced nutrition, combining probiotics and prebiotics and postbiotics, and enzyme. What else has it got? Jeez, which has been proven to improve gut health. Supporters, don't forget our 10% off coupon, NeuroNoodle10. The contact for info, everyone is located in the podcast notes. Idea for a topic, please email Pete at NeuroNoodle.com or leave us a voicemail with the link in the podcast notes. Please give us five stars on Apple Podcasts, subscribe to our YouTube channel, smash that like button on Facebook, Instagram, and follow us on Twitter. And hey, if you really, really like us, you can buy us a coffee on Patreon slash NeuroNoodle. We love our Patreon people. Cue the music. 